Good afternoon from USC's Annenberg Media Center, and welcome to From Where We Are from Annenberg Radio News. For Thursday, October 5th, 2017, I'm Nadia Caldwell. First, a news update with Tommy Durkin. Governor Jerry Brown has passed legislation officially making California a sanctuary state, despite threats from the Trump administration that it will cut off federal funding. Aziza Kasimov reports. Senate Bill 54 was introduced by Los Angeles lawmaker Kevin DeLeon. It limits local law enforcement cooperation with federal authorities. Additionally, it puts restraints on who local agencies can detain, question, and transfer at the request of federal agencies. The bill takes effect in January. DeLeon says it shields the more than 2.3 million undocumented immigrants living in the state. While signing the bill, Governor Brown said that it in no way prevents federal immigration agencies from their jobs. Instead, he says it will enable law enforcement to continue targeting criminals while protecting individuals living without legal status in the state. LAPD Chief Charlie Beck supported the bill, but other law enforcement officials did not. For Annenberg Media, I'm Aziza Kazumov. Westwood was the scene this morning of a small immigration protest that ended in some arrest. Chantel Bushai reports. The protest began at 9 this morning when nine protesters gathered at the corner of Wilshire and Veteran. They were lying on bunk bed frames to imitate prison beds. Protesters like Jessica Gonzalez criticized L.A. County for approving a $3.2 billion jail expansion, which they believe will result in more immigrants being arrested. It's only leading to further deportation. It's only leading to further criminalization. And what we're saying is reinvest that money into the community, right? As the protests continued, the group spread out into the intersection blocking traffic. Gazan police moved and declared the protest an unlawful assembly. Uh, traffic shut down, so West LA actually brought some extra resources in, just enough to kind of handle it and to calmly make the arrests of the people that were uh, dedicated to be arrested by the group. The nine protesters on the beds were arrested. One of them was a sister of Sophia, who didn't want to give her last name. So what we're trying to bring attention to is this enforcement system um, and saying that we demand dignity, not detention. The protest day marked the deadline for people covered under DACA to renew their work permits. For Annenberg Media, I'm Chantal Bushai. The federal government is giving Los Angeles $900,000 to help victims of domestic and sexual violence. As Lydia Lee reports, Mayor Garcetti made the announcement today as part of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Mayor Garcetti appeared at a City Hall news conference this morning to announce a three-year grant from the Department of Justice. The mayor says the city has made strides in recent years, but he says many survivors are suffering in silence. Our work is not finished until every victim is turned into a survivor and until we don't even have to think about survivors because we've eradicated violence from our communities here in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles Police Department has reported a significant drop in serious crimes, especially in the Latino community. Councilwoman Nuri Martinez criticized President Trump's harsh comments about immigration, and she says that's why many people are afraid to report domestic violence. If the community does not feel safe in reporting their crime to LAPD, then what kinds of resources can we provide and promote and which would enable them to be able to contact someone else if they become a victim? Mayor Garcetti hopes the grant from the federal government will allow the city to help 30 percent more victims. The money will be used for training police officers and opening new shelters. From Annenberg Media, I'm Lydia Lee. 
film producer Harvey Weinstein will take a leave of absence after being accused of sexual harassment. In interviews conducted by the New York Times, women described behavior by Weinstein that included appearing nearly or fully naked in front of them, requiring them to watch while he bathed, repeatedly asking for a massage, or initiating one himself. Over the decades, Weinstein has reached at least eight settlements with women, the earliest among the recipients in 1990 and the most recent in 2015. Most of the women who said they were harassed by Weinstein had never met one another and ranged in age from their early 20s to late 40s. Tonight, temperatures will drop to a low of 61 with clear skies. As we enter the weekend, temperatures will rise, reaching as high as 92 degrees on Saturday before dropping back down to a low of 80 on Sunday. A top congressional Democrat in California is calling for House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi to step aside. Pelosi has served in Congress since 1987 and has been the Democratic House leader for the last 14 years. Congresswoman Linda Sanchez released a statement today expressing concern over the growing generational rift. She believes there are many talented leaders and policymakers not being given the opportunity to achieve. This isn't the first call for change, however, as other House Democrats expressed the need for a transition of leadership following a wildly expensive loss in the Georgia House race. Residents of a building in Little Tokyo gathered today at City Hall to oppose the building's designation as a historic landmark, an application they say will erase the history and contributions of Japanese Americans in Los Angeles. As Anthony Chiradelli reports, they showed up at a meeting of the Cultural Heritage Commission. One of the buildings on the docket today of the Cultural Heritage Commission was the Joannis Brothers Company building on Traction Ave. The building had been a home and a workspace for Japanese-American artists since 1978 when a local family company purchased the building. In May, DLJ Real Estate Capital Partners bought the building, and now residents say their homes are threatened because they have received notices to vacate. 68-year-old Bruce Yanimoto says he will no longer have anywhere to work. Well, it would be impossible to find a similar space uh, in Los Angeles. I've been looking, and that's what the building was first designated for. Before it was designated for artists, it was a home to the Ben-Hur Coffee and Spice Company, and that's why it's being considered a historic landmark. But Yanimoto and other residents fear its importance to Japanese-American culture will be overlooked. He compares it to the Japanese-American internment during World War II. They were, you know, forced eviction. They were put into camps, and now we're being evicted again. So, I mean, it just continues. The president of the Cultural Heritage Commission was sympathetic to the residents' concerns, but he told them a historic designation doesn't cause evictions. For Annenberg Media, I'm Anthony Cerdelli. It's six minutes after the hour. I'm Tommy Durkin. Thanks, Tommy. Coming up on From Where We Are, we take a look at how USC makes sure campus is more environment friendly. Give me things that I wanted to know. Tell me things that you've done. Policymakers are discussing a potential increase in gun control regulations in the wake of the Las Vegas tragedy. It turns out that gun manufacturer companies actually make more money when there is a mass shooting in America. Andrea Friedman has the story. Sturm, Ruger and & Company, and Smith & Wesson saw stock market surges in each of the last three years directly following the tragic mass shootings in San Bernardino, Orlando, and most recently Las Vegas. 
MNP is defined by more. These are premium firearms. So what is the psychology driving consumers to the gun shop? I caught up with USC psychology professor Richard Johns for insights into this behavioral trend. Press given to the possibility of new gun control laws that people rush out to buy guns. John says that the media portrayal of tragedies often adds fuel to our fire. Just out of fear, people see that people are being uh, attacked and they want to have a weapon to defend themselves. And these patterns of behavior between gun purchases, mass shootings, and gun regulations are not new. There are some things that are really, you know, strongly, deeply held beliefs that, that really are fed in aspects of culture. That's Dr. Stephen Westberg, adjunct professor of consumer psychology at USC. He says many people believe bearing arms is their God-given right, so any regulation around it gets a lot of attention. There's such a strong gun culture throughout the U.S. that I think consumers are, you know, they see it in the news and they're worried that that's going to be uh, prohibited in the future, so they rush out to purchase those things. For Annenberg Media, I'm Andrea Friedman. Annenberg Media reached out to five local gun shops who all refused to comment, several at the behest of their lawyers. In California, bump stocks have been illegal since 2012, but if someone wants to purchase one, they don't have to go far. Neighboring states, including Nevada, Utah, and Arizona, sell bump stocks. A short drive is all it takes to get them into California. Online, many gun stores have already sold out of bump stocks, including one retailer in Texas that, due to an overwhelming number of requests, had to shut down its website. Today, as Congressman Tim Murphy submitted his resignation in correlation with leaked messages where the vocal pro-lifer requested his lover have an abortion, an act that passed the House on Tuesday is once again front and center. The act in question could challenge California abortion laws if approved. Karina Sadie has the story. The Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act will make it a federal crime to perform or attempt to perform an abortion after 20 weeks. Report to accompany House Resolution 548, resolution providing for consideration of the bill H.R. 36 to amend Title 18, United States Code to protect... California law allows women to have abortions until the end of the period of viability at the 24th week of a pregnancy. This means that if the act gets approved by the Senate and the President, then the federal and state laws will conflict. The Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution says that the state courts are bound by the Supreme Law. This means that when federal and state laws conflict, you can get in trouble with the government if you follow state laws. The only exception the bill contains is for a pregnant woman at risk or in the cases of rape and incest. Jill Adams, executive director of the Center on Reproductive Rights and Justice at Berkeley Law, provided her perspective on the bill. She wrote, H.R. 36 attempts to undermine more than four decades of abortion rights jurisprudence by banning pre-viability abortion, which is patently unconstitutional. While this bill may change abortion rights in the country, it also brings up the conflict between state and federal laws. Uh, leave it up to the state's business, uh, how the people... Uh, choose their health care is, is up to the citizens of the states, and the federal government should stay out. For Annenberg Media, I'm Karina Sadie. From sports to politics to a combination of the two, L.Z. Granderson's work has been celebrated throughout the world of journalism.
Contributor J.K. Hughes sat down with him to talk about the unique point of view present in all of his pieces in this week's iteration of Match Volume. You can't discuss the world of sports commentary without mentioning L.Z. Granderson, award-winning journalist and broadcast personality. Outspoken member of the LGBTQ community, Granderson pens provocative pieces that often reveal where politics, culture, and sports meet. I know you're very forthcoming about like the difficulties you had in childhood, and a lot of people understandably succumb to like those external pressures. But why are you? Why were you able to get where you are despite all of that? Oh God, I sold drugs. I took drugs. I didn't graduate from high school on time because I was oftentimes drunk when I should have been in class. Like I'm not going to pretend as if, you know, I just single-handedly rose above it all. I had a, I was surrounded by a lot of angels who didn't uh, give up on me. So what was your introduction to the sports world? Like when you were young, was there like a moment where you're like, this is what I want? I don't remember there being one particular moment in which I fell in love with sports. It just always was there. You know, like my hair color, or, you know, my height. A lot of your writing is infused with like social issues. Why do you feel that has a place in something like sports, which is seemingly like unrelated? I can't think of anything more political than sports, not even politics. Why do you say that? Because every single aspect of sports has something to do with politics. And here's an example. If we have a conversation about the greatest baseball players of all time, there is a sharp contrast between the type of competition that Babe Ruth, who's considered among the greatest, faced, and anyone post Jackie Robinson. Are we going to pretend as if that isn't a factor? Uh, If you want to talk about where a stadium is built, well, who's paying for that stadium? And if it's taxpayers, guess what? Taxpayers usually mean there's a political conversation happening. Whether you're cognizant or not, that's a whole other discussion. But the simple fact that if there's a stadium and there's a millage that has to be proved or approved by voters, that's a political conversation. If we want to have a discussion about Title IX, well, sure, but that's a political conversation. If you want to talk about some of our greatest athletes of all time, like a Muhammad Ali or Jim Brown or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Bill Russell, are we really going to talk about Bill Russell's career in Boston and not mention all the racism he faced? Well, that's a political, social conversation as well. Do you think it's irresponsible then to watch sports but then reject that like lens like some people just want to escape from sports and don't want to hear the politics of it no 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 no. i mean i still listen to michael jackson but i know what the allegations are i still watch woody allen films but i know what the allegations are r kelly still got the jams and we all know what the allegations are just nasty Mm -hmm. just nasty so so i i think that we as humans learn to compartmentalize and I don't think it's hypocritical to call out the infractions and still try to enjoy the art or the athlete separate from that. I think the hypocrisy comes when you pretend as if it doesn't exist because you don't want to do the work. I think if you recognize the the conflict and say, for this moment, I'm not going to do the work, but I'm aware that the work is there, I don't find that to be hypocritical. That was news commentator L.Z. Granderson speaking with Jay Cahill. Today on The International Current, we discuss Catalonia Referendum for Independence with Carlo Basta. Catalonia couldn't be more over Spain. But as the Spanish territory flirts with independence, the government in Madrid can't help but get in the way. 
Welcome to the International Current. Today, the week after the Catalonian referendum for independence, what has happened and what does it mean? I'm Ryan Thompson. It's been a busy week in Barcelona since polls closed on Sunday night. The latest drama, Spain's constitutional court has blocked Catalonia's regional parliament from meeting Monday. They were supposed to discuss the results of the referendum held on Sunday. If the Catalonian parliament does meet in some way, shape, or form, the consequences could be serious and include criminal action against the politicians. Here to break down how we got to this point is Carlo Basta from Memorial University in Newfoundland, Canada. He's been writing about the politics of Catalonia for much of his career in academia. Carlo, to start, let's talk about Spain's all-or-nothing response. Are you surprised by it? I, I'm not entirely sure um, that that, can, that we can be shocked in, in light of the fact that both sides effectively have dug themselves into their own particular narratives of, of what needs to happen, right? So the Spanish government has been um, steadfast in denying any possibility of a referendum for the past five years. And uh, the same party that is in power now has, prior to that, for seven years prior to that, actually been quite opposed to uh, more extensive autonomy for Catalonia. So these are people who are, if we're talking about this particular political party, who are quite, um, quite well set on their path. Now, most of this has been playing out in the media, not with mediators or an international court. It might be time for Catalonia to turn to someone else for help would probably not have that much uh, validity uh, from the perspective of international law. And, um, and I think that the Catalan government understands this, which is why they're trying to internationalize the issue. They're trying to involve the European Union. They're trying to involve foreign governments. But, uh, you know, this is uh, um, Spain is a member of a club of other states and uh, states protect one another. On Sunday and again on Monday and Tuesday, we saw demonstrations across Catalonia that turned violent. Protesters clashed with national police. So was there a better way that this could have played out? Should Catalonia have been more passive to Spain's attempts to block this vote from taking place in the first place? Yesterday's violence um, has changed things to such to such an extent that the answer to that question becomes a lot more diff difficult to predict now, I think. I, I would say that any kind of a deal that the Spanish government may have offered to uh, the Catalan government on Saturday is no longer good enough on Sunday or Monday or moving forward. Uh, so that uh, those events of yesterday have really transformed, I think, um, the, the the possibilities of uh, of any kind of a deal or any kind of a compromise going forward. And I think uh, it, they've hardened the lines on, on both sides. In fact, uh, Carlo Basta, thank you for your time and phoning in. The president of the Catalan parliament has not formally convened a session for Monday, but has voiced discontent for the court's decision. For Annenberg Media, I'm Ryan Thompson. Hurricanes, earthquakes, and shootings are making all of us aware of how important communication is in a disaster. USC is more than prepared thanks to a network of ham radio operators on campus. Here's Erica Klein with Trojan Tales. K6THH. No, that was not a call from outer space. That was a ham radio meeting taking place on the rooftop of a USC parking lot at Jefferson and Grand Avenue. Uh, QRZ, the frequency, here's Alpha Fox 6 Whiskey Uniforms. Anybody on? 
that was USC professor Travis Williams, a licensed ham radio operator. Ham radios have been eclipsed by new technology, but they've been around since the early 1900s. They're regulated by the Federal Communications Commission and allow operators to speak to each other via handheld radios. What the FCC did was they reserved little tiny slices of bandwidth all up and down the spectrum for uh, amateur use. These pieces of bandwidth should be used for uh, experimentation and emergency preparedness by amateurs. And uh, we've been doing it ever since. Radio emergency communication. Bob team. Montana is one of the leaders of USC's amateur radio emergency communications team. My name is Bob, call sign KF6TGM, acting net control. USC has about 25 amateur radio members who are part of the emergency response team. At this time, is there any emergency or priority traffic? If a disaster hits, Montana says he'll first check on the people he's with and then his family. And then once I've got that stabilized, then I'm going to grab my radio equipment and I'm going to try to make contact. It could take anywhere from a few minutes to a few hours for them to establish communications for university departments. Montana says that some don't see the need for ham radio with the rise of the internet and cell phones. I guess you have to have like a sense of how fragile the grid is and uh, we take so much for granted. Now we know what ham radio operators do, but you might be wondering, why is it called ham? Professor Williams says there are several legends. A hundred years ago, somebody in the professional communications business was talking about radio amateurs and called them in a derogatory way a bunch of hams. Uh, and the amateurs latched onto it. I don't know which of these is correct. Whatever they call themselves, the ham radio operators say there will always be a need for their reliable technology. For Annenberg Media, I'm Erica Klein. USC will be rolling out a comprehensive new system of trash cans and recycling bins over the next year. But what's missing from that plan are recycling containers in outdoor areas, particularly in the campus food courts. Here's Bradley Bermont with the story. It's probably something that most people don't think about. What happens to all the trash we throw? So I'm standing here in front of the Ronald Tudor Campus Center. It's about 12.15. And lunch is in full swing. I'm looking at this first trash can, and it's already overflowing with, with trash. There's paper sticking out of it. I can look inside. I can see plastic. I can see cardboard. I can see wrappers inside the plastic. Hey, guys, I'm doing a story for Annenberg Media about recycling on campus. And uh, you notice that there's, like, only a trash can here? Do you guys ever feel bad about, about not being able to recycle the stuff you're throwing away? You're like, you're throwing away plastic in here. You ever think about it? I'm not collecting tobacco. You don't think about it? <laughs> okay. I actually don't, unfortunately. I probably should. These are like all-purpose trash cans and... There's a recycling guys here, right? I know, but that's only for cans and bottles. I had thought about it in the past and somebody told me, oh, we separate all the garbage, you know, whatever. And that's true. USC does separate recycling from trash, according to Hallie Bovia, sustainability program manager at USC. But it doesn't mean that every piece of plastic in those all-purpose trash cans will get recycled. We do recycle plastic, but once you get the plastic too contaminated with food like Panda Express, it, it loses its value as a commodity and nobody will really accept it. It becomes landfill anyway. The company that currently handles USC's waste, Athens Services, actually sorts the trash. Our, our hauler does sort everything. They open every bag and sort it. The problem is when plastic is contaminated with food. 
it gets harder, even impossible, to recycle. We have a uh, orange chicken all over our plastic. It's not going to be able to be really salvaged. There is another option, compost, which USC has started doing. There are compostable um, pieces. It's not a comprehensive program by any stretch, but there's compostable serviceware. That's forks and knives. In TCC, uh, Ground Zero, in a number of the cafes. Uh, so the, it's happening, it's happening at a slower rate um, because there's not real, uh, real infrastructure to support it. She says that it's a logistical problem. Companies must be set up to handle compostable plastics, like the forks and knives we have on campus. If they end up in a landfill, they won't get broken down. Well, that's not good because normally that serviceware is two to three times more than the regular disposable, non-compostable serviceware. So you're spending this extra money for it to go in the landfill anyway. It doesn't break down in the landfill. Bovia says that the biggest problem is that not all companies are able to handle compostables. And as of next year, USC's trash will no longer be handled by Athens. In January 2018, Republic Services will take over the trash and recycling hauling for South Los Angeles. Bovia is concerned that this company may not have the same capabilities as the university's previous provider. This could impact USC's sustainability efforts. Unfortunately, the company did not respond for comment. For Annenberg Media, I'm Bradley Bermont. One historic gym in Los Angeles is a fairly unknown club. It was once the gathering place of the biggest Hollywood stars and wealthiest businessmen in the city. Today, the club looks a little different, but still has the same allure. Eli Goodstein introduces us to the Los Angeles Breakfast Club. Hello, ma'am. What if I told you there was a secret club in Los Angeles that has been around for nearly 100 years? You probably would think I'm crazy but the organization and its members are just as real as you or me. I was head over heels from the second I, I met this club. So I kind of took it upon myself to restore it, to revive it, to bring new life to it. Lily Holloman is the current president and chairman of the Los Angeles Breakfast Club. The group's been around since 1925, when the Hollywood elite rode horses through Griffith Park and then gathered together for breakfast every Wednesday morning. They started inviting people to tell stories and entertainers to sing and do comedy. And they created these crazy rituals that still exist today. Uh, they're all very tongue-in-cheek. They're almost making fun of the clubs that existed at that time. <laughs> But that's not the whole story. You see, the club wasn't just a one-stop shop for the rich and wealthy to eat some good food. It was a place for them to break bread together. The point of the club is to create a level playing field so that even big businessmen who were rivals would come to this club and were considered a ham and an egg. They were considered equals. They had to bury the hatchet and um, break bread together. But from the 1980s to the turn of the century, the club had been struggling with a problem, attendance. Myrtle Nelson, a member of the board, says it had a lot to do with age. When I first came, there were a lot of, since I'm old, I can say old people, okay? And uh, slowly they would d die or, or not come anymore because they couldn't drive. And then Lily came 
and breathe new life into the organization. And we went from like having 15 people here to now maybe 40, 45. Holloman tripled the size of membership by using social media to spread the word. Today, the age range is 25 to 95. And Myrtle believes these newest and youngest members are the reason why the original purpose of the Breakfast Club remains intact. People support each other here. They give to each other and in the most unexpected ways. And Myrtle happened upon the club in a very unexpected way as well. A friend used to come and, um, and her husband, they were members, and she bugged me until I came. And then I, the people I met here were so nice that I decided to come. All I knew was, was the Breakfast Club on the air, which didn't really go in to what the real Breakfast Club is. Bye, please. One of the regular fellows of the Breakfast Club and the vice president of the Breakfast Club, the man whom we all like, Ivan D. Parker has as his personal guest a famous MGM star and his wife. At this time, we delight in presenting Mr. Clark Gable and his charming wife, Mrs. Gable. With 92 years under its belt, the L.A. Breakfast Club lives on, and that's just the way Lily Holloman likes it, especially because she is a working actor. The club's history as a gathering place for Hollywood stars serves as a form of motivation. It makes me feel connected to the people who came here, who had the same dreams, who had similar goals of self-expression and creativity. Holloman views the club as she wants the community to see it, as a living piece of history and she'll continue working to make sure the public never forgets it. That's it from From Where We Are Today. Today's show was produced by Norhan Mutton. We had help today from Jose Cardenas, Maya Tejas, and Erica Feldbetter. Feldbetter. Chris Perfett is our board operator. The theme music was composed by Derek Renfro. And I'm Nadia Caldwell.